We owe this to the next generation. Uh, and, and I can simply do nothing other than die in the attempt of getting this to every child across the world. That's it. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. Today, we're speaking with Leslie Adwin. Leslie is a former filmmaker and now a human rights campaigner. She is CEO and founder of Think Equal, an international not-for-profit that now works with 44,500 children all over the globe. Leslie has been awarded the Anna Lynn Human Rights Award in the Swedish Parliament, the UN Women for Peace Activists Award, Global Hero by Safe Magazine, and Global Thinking Award by Foreign Policy. She was also voted by the New York Times the second most impactful woman of 2016 after Hillary Clinton. Leslie's work as a filmmaker includes East by East, Who Bombed Birmingham, and India's Daughter, which has sparked not just a global movement to end violence against children, but also was the genesis for this quite remarkable not-for-profit that she now leads, Think Equal. Think Equal designs, constructs, and delivers a detailed, extended early years program to foster and lay a foundation of values and social-emotional intelligence with the young people that it supports across the different countries in which it works. Leslie, thank you so much for making the time. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. I'm honoured that you um, that you're speaking to me. So Look, the thank pleasure you. is all mine, Leslie. Let's just start with you know this question, and that is, what is the big question that's driven you to where you are in your work right now? What is the big question that you're exploring through the way that you contribute to the world? The big question is how can we get to the point where we are enabled, empowered to treat each other with dignity, to love, not hate? Clearly, we are aware, (laughs) we are overly aware that discrimination and inequality and injustice holds us back collectively we have found ourselves increasingly prevailed upon and we have now become fused as one with a system that allows a a handful of us to not just be privileged over and above all the others, but to be obscenely privileged to the detriment of all the others. And we sit here pathetically accepting that. What is wrong with us is one way of expressing the question. Have we gone so far in our sense of despair and pessimism that we sit here looking at it all and saying, well, it's too big now. It's too, it's too dark now. Mm. I can't get to that light switch I haven't got the energy to do it because it's going to take me so much to crawl over to the light switch and switch it on. (laughs) You know, I mean, I don't know what metaphor to use. (laughs) That one popped up. The the fact is, you know, Pope Francis, who is one of the most revolutionary heroes actually in the world. Now, Catholic Church, yes, very contentious, um, paedophilia, etc. cetera. The, the, the monolithic structure mm. is very separate from the beating heart of the human being who currently occupies the central role in the Catholic Church. And, and I'm not Catholic. I happen to be Jewish. What does it matter? Um, mm. The fact is, uh, I am on his task force, uh, for the Global Compact for Education. And he has a truly, truly revolutionary heart. And and I'm sure if he were allowed to, he would help at least his following of the Catholic Church's following, and there are many of them, to inch towards this. But he talks about, in an extraordinary encyclical he has written to humanity, as as popes do, I, I believe, from time to time, they write a letter to the world. Um, and he has written one called Laudato Si, 
which is an extraordinary work. And in it, he uses a phrase that haunts me and that keeps on popping into my head all the time. Rather irritatingly, actually, because I can't get rid of it. It's a kind of, you know, neon that, that is pulsing constantly. And the phrase is this, the globalization of indifference. Now, that seems to me to be the obstacle to this big question of how, how are we going to get there? Mm. We have to shake off this indifference. We have to fight it for all we're worth. And it's very hard for us to do that because, you know, at the age of six, habitual ways of responding in terms of a trajectory of activity in the developing brain flatlines at the age of six, we are what we are in terms of habitual ways of responding uh, from six onwards. Um, and so it becomes very hard to undo that wiring. It becomes very hard to form new habits. And I'm talking about the habits of optimism, the habits of action. And it seems to me that without that, yeah. we're just going to go down the plug hole like that little, you know, the vortex, <laughs> the, of, vortex you know, of, the, yeah. Yeah, the vortex of the water yeah. and, and disappear. And if we can't do that now, at this moment in history and time, the zeitgeist is, it's now or never, really, now or never. Yeah. So, of course, my heart sings when, you know, and soars when I see the Black Lives Matter movement, the degree to which, you know, people around the world are uh, taking it to heart. But then, other than the pulling down of the statues, where's the action are we going to have to wait another decade before any significant action? And I mean significant action because the mm. protests aren't going to do it. The protests are just the indication of how urgent, critical, um, uh, and, and appalling and brutal systemic racism is. Mm. But even the dismantling of a police force in Minneapolis, is that going to do it? Of course it's not going to do it. It's a drop of water on a stone. Racism is systemic. Mm. You can only treat it systemically. Yeah. And so a part of that question is, how are we going to systemically root out injustice and discrimination and hatred and violence and the kind of decisions that our politicians are making that are simply obscene, disgusting, disgraceful, not acceptable? Well, that's a pretty strong place to start, Leslie, and I expected nothing else um, knowing who you are and how passionate you are about this work. And of course, Think Equal as an initiative was launched as a direct response to issues of racial, religious, and gender-based discrimination and violence around the world. Uh, and clearly, you know, the filming of India's daughter, as you and I have spoken about before, you know, it was an incredibly pivotal moment in, and a sense of awakening in you. Give us a sense of wh why you care so much about this and what those moments of impact were that actually drove you to be less of a filmmaker, although clearly you're still a storyteller, and more of this, you know, advocate for early years education and trying to centralize things like compassion, perspective taking, uh, empathy, you know, ethics, um, you know, decency, the way that we treat uh, each other as human beings. Okay, so just a, a couple of, of tiny um, recalibration of, of words there. So sure. I don't consider myself to be an advocate or a campaigner. Okay. Although part of what I do is advocating and part of what I do is campaigning, I consider myself to be an activist. Okay. And that is going to be absolutely a critical difference. Um, and also, I am no longer in any shape or form a filmmaker. I have completely turned my back on what was a, 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 a beloved, cherished mm. career that I was very happy and indeed a, a bit successful at for many, many years. And the reason for that is that films can only engender awareness and we've got enough awareness. We know, we know how many times are we going to come at it from a different angle, measure this side of it, measure that side of it. I enough, really, come on. Let's grow up now and do something about it and take the steps because we also have the tools. Um, so so what was it in that film that so specifically led me? I think that, that was primarily your question. Well, it was a two and a half year journey. So of course there were many, many, many insights that led me to create Think Equal and 
and give myself over entirely to a new career, a new purpose in life. I actually yeah. feel I found my purpose Wow! once that film was released and that was the end of that life and the new life began. And I'll never make another film again because how could I responsibly, having learned what I've learned so powerfully from that two and a half year journey, um, now turn my attention to another subject? Mm. I can't, I have to pursue this one and act on the insights I got. Now, the insights were pretty much based in the 31 hours of interviews I had over a number of weeks with rapists and murderers in prison cells. And this film I was making, I thought when I embarked on the journey, was going to be a campaigning film um, that amplified the voices of the most magnificent protesters. I mean, we've seen the Black Lives Matter protests, mm. the equivalent of those for gender, for women and girls and ending violence against them was to be found on the streets of all of India's cities in December 2012 and January 2013. And it went on and on and on for over a month. It was the most beautiful, courageous, extraordinary gathering of men and women, um, you know, screaming enough is enough. We're not having this anymore. And I went there full of hope thinking, this is the Tahrir Square for gender. You know, this is the beginning sure. of the end of violence against women. And I got there and I actually thought, you know what? We know all this. So what am I going to do? Make a film that only amplifies the voices of the protesters? No, okay, let its pulse and heartbeat be that. But unless I can sit with the men who gang-raped this young 23-year-old medical student on a bus for virtually an hour until her intestines were hanging out of her body and then threw her like a piece of rubbish onto the side of the highway to die, bleed to death, uh, which she didn't, by the way. She survived for 13 days. The surgeons didn't know which bits of her to join. That's how they described her. Anyway, I thought unless I can sit with them and find out what kind of human beings can do this to another human being, what's the point of making this film? What's the point of this journey? And so all of the insights flowed from that decision. And I did manage to persuade the director general of Tihar Jail in Delhi, which is high security jail. Uh, and I sat with them and other rapists one of whom had raped a five-year-old girl. Now, when you sit with the men who do this, when you look them in the eyes for several hours, none of my interviews were less than three hours. Mm. And I had 150 questions for each of them, which I prepared with forensic psychologists and psychiatrists. The extraordinary thing that happened was that I look in their eyes and I don't see the monsters I'm expecting. And they don't have two heads. And they're very ordinary, pathetically ordinary, unremarkable human beings. Wow. And from every answer I got from them, it became absolutely clear that the anger I feared I would feel to the extent of potentially assaulting one of them, that was my greatest fear in facing these interviews was, and, and also partly because I was raped at 18. And so I thought, oh, my God, if ever there's a situation where I, a completely nonviolent human being, might just be moved to physically assault someone, it'll be that situation where I'm sitting in those prison cells talking to those vile brutes. I didn't feel any anger. In 31 hours, I promise you, anger didn't surface. It didn't surface because it wasn't appropriate mm. to the situation and who they were and why they act as they act. And they didn't express any remorse or regret. Isn't that extraordinary? Not one of them, not in 31 hours, did I have a single second of what the filmmaker in me craved, which was a tear falling down the cheek, you know. Sure, you imagine sure. what your film would look like. Nothing, Luca, wow. nothing. Yeah. Why? The same reason, because they genuinely didn't believe they had done wrong. Even the guy who had raped the five-year-old justified it, explained it by saying, word for word, I'm going to quote what he said, word mm. for word, he mm. said, she was a beggar girl. Her life was of no value, wow. word for word. 
because the caste system in India is such that it programs you to see those Dalits, those untouchables mm-hmm. as subhuman. They're not human. Mm-hmm. So they are dispensable. They are a fly that you can swat or a cockroach as with the, Tutu, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis, right? Sure. They, they were primed, they were programmed to see the Tutsis as cockroaches and dogs so that they could go in and commit genocide and annihilate them. Yeah. The Jews were vermin and rats, etc., etc. Hmm. So you suddenly come to realize our culpability in their actions. Because if we, society, sociocultural thinking has programmed them and taught them how to think and taught them the discriminatory mindset, which is the disease here that we're dealing with, it's yeah. not the violence. Violence is the symptom of the disease. Yeah, sure. And as a world, we're simply dealing with the violence. How, how stupid is that? Mm. How utterly idiotic, irresponsible and insane is that? Mm. If we just build more shelters, it'll be okay, will it? Will the problem go away or will we just have more people to put into the shelters? Yeah. You know, or more yes. rooms to put the people in. We're putting bandages on the wounds at best, plasters at worst, mm-hmm. you know, but then yeah, absolutely. tackling it at the root cause. And just the final thing to say about the film, um, it, it was shocking enough sitting with those rapists who told me, by the way, that the girl on the bus not only deserved what she got because she was out at night after dark, that means she's a bad girl. She was with a boy who wasn't her husband or her brother or her father that means she was a slut. And if she was giving him some, why can't she give me some? And, you know, uh, and, and, and they said things like, you know, people with money uh, do it with money. Uh, we have to take it by other means because we don't have the money. Right? That, right? And then they said, not only did she deserve what she got, but they had a duty to teach her a lesson. Goodness. Because yeah. she was a bad girl. Now, that is cultural programming. There's no other explanation for it. But then just the last thing to say is that, that not only was I amazed to find that they justified what they did, but at the point at which I looked at them and thought, okay, you're uneducated, you're poor, you're trying to find the common threads. And, and thinking that lack of education was a factor, I then find myself some two weeks later sitting in front of their entire legal team. And this is what brought me to think equal and to understand how we can tackle it. Because their lawyers, yeah. who had the highest possible degree of access to education, made the rapists sound like angels. I really mean that. Yeah. So one of the lawyers said, if my daughter had behaved like that girl on the bus, I would take her to my farmhouse and in front of my whole family, I would pour petrol on her and burn her alive. He's been through not just secondary education, mm. tertiary education. What does that mean? It means the education system we have is not fit for purpose. It's a broken model. Mm. And that's what got me researching. So what is education? Who designed it? For what purpose? When? Yeah. Industrial revolution to fill factories. Yeah. Two, more than 200 years ago. Yeah. Leslie, there's, I mean, you lay out some, some of the darkest parts of our human tapestry, I think. So, and I mean, I really, I really, that really does resonate with me. The idea that, well, okay, we'll put this down to a lack of something. Whereas, but then when it is present, so education is present, and yet that is still the views that people can hold. Tell me about the journey from that point in time, from effectively being, you know, stepping through that whole process of dissonance and almost, you know, walking away from your entire previous career to become an activist in education and, and why then have you ended up with this focus on the early years specifically with Think Equal? Okay, so it was incredibly logical and, and progressive in terms of one thing leading to another. Because when I got to that moment in time when I thought, hmm, so the lawyers are at least as bad if not worse. So what does that tell us about education? Because surely education as you know, all the wise um, leaders of the world have always said, Mandela said, education is the most powerful weapon we have to change the world. Well, yes, I understood exactly why he was saying, had been saying that, because uh, 
you know, you can't change mindset without education. How else are you going to change mindset? Mm. Having realized that it was the programmed mindset that led these men to behave as they did. So what the lawyers brought into focus was, but what kind of education? And the understanding that it has to be contents of education as opposed to mere access to the education system, or put another way, access to a different kind of education than the ones we are providing. Okay, so having understood that, I started researching pure and simple. Um, First of all, I went to find out by reading more and more and more of Mandela, what did he mean by education? When he said education is the most powerful tool, well, what did he mean? What kind of education? He didn't mean surely uh, learning to read and count. So what did he mean? And then I found the quote that I think now is, is uh, you know, wonderfully famous, um, which is, no human being is born hating another. You know, a, a person has to be taught to hate. And if he can be taught to hate, he can be taught to love. Yeah. Now, there it was, that moment that I read those words, everything fell into place. Because I've been sitting in front of men who had so palpably and clearly been taught to hate. Mm. You see? And, and then I began a process of saying, well, how do we teach children to love? Whose duty is it? Well, the world says it's the duty of the parents. It used to say it was the duty of the church or the synagogue or the mosque. Sure. The world leaves it to the parents. And I'm thinking, so how logical is that, that the parents are going to be able to do this and uniformly and even-handedly? Well, it's utterly insane. The parents can't do it. The parents themselves haven't been taught it. So where are they going to learn it from in order to then teach it to their children? The parents can only cyclically, um, you know, proliferate discrimination by passing it down to their children. In fact, that is Mm. how it goes on and on. Mm. That is culture. That is cultural thinking. So it can't be the parents. Well, what is the duty of the education system? And... Because education, as we know it, was developed in and for the Industrial Revolution in order to put kids in factories, and that has persisted. We haven't revised its purpose. We haven't reimagined it it, or or repurposed it for a new world, right? Mm. Um, And and it still has the same purpose, which is to put our children into the labor market, to get them jobs. Firstly, that's erroneous and misguided because the world is a very different place now and increasingly so. And what we're teaching them in school is not going to help them a great deal in the face of machines, AI, computers, calculators that can do it much better than, than human beings and with no uh, ma- you know, margin for error. <laughs> so how, how misguided are we stuck in an age that no longer exists? But quite apart from that, this, there's a missing dimension to education. Mm. And it is that very subject or dimension that teaches social and emotional learning, life skills to our children. Now, these are sometimes called 21st century skills, which always makes me giggle because I just think, really, we didn't need it in another century? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but call it what you will, it's the same thing. And I know that, you know, some of our um, colleagues on the steering committee of Karanga, um, uh, which, I mean, I, I hope everybody listening knows Karanga is an extraordinary organization convening, um, you know, the, the, the power of this new thinking to reimagine education and to give social and emotional learning to, to our children and see it embedded in education in the way it always should have been. Um, but I know, you know, Stephanie Jones, who's one of our steering committee members, Um, thinks that the fact that there is no uniformity of nomenclature, that there are all these separate, is is an obstacle, and it may well be, but I just think in some ways it doesn't matter what we call it. We know what we mean. You know, uh, the the academic distinctions of whether it is life skills or non-cognitive skills, or we know what we're talking about here is helping our children to know right from wrong, helping them co-create a moral compass, uh, helping them be compassionate, experience empathy and compassion, because you can't teach that through, you know, wagging a finger and saying, put yourself in that person's shoes. Uh Uh-uh. You've got to experience it. 
the alarm has just, was that the alarm? Yeah, I think the alarm is being tested. Anyway, how exciting. Um, fire alarm. So the thing is, uh, yeah, that, that, you know, understanding that there's a missing subject basically just meant, for me, mm. well, get on with it, create that subject. Mm. You know, there's no point, ah, one missing piece, and you did ask it in your question, and, and I almost failed to answer it, because, but it's key. Sure. Early childhood. How did I get to early childhood? Well, research and reading, and trying to work out in the development of the human being, at what point does the question of morality, for example, kick in? You know, at what point does a developing child have moral consciousness? Because that is key to knowing whether uh, we should start at two or whether we should start at seven. Mm. Well, moral consciousness begins at three. Um, the earliest we find children in school is three. We don't really find children below three. Some countries mandate education from three, and they are the enlightened and wise ones. Some countries are still laboring under this Scandinavian misapprehension that actually in the early years, children should just be left to play. Interesting. Certain things flatline in the developing brain by six. And we have neuroscientists who have studied this and mapped the brain. And I just don't know how we can be so selective in, you know, we say science is paramount. We're led by the science. We're led by the scientists. But in some respects, we ignore the science. You know, would an architect start building from the ground floor up? No, not if he really wants a functional building that isn't going to crack in, 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 and collapse. Yeah. Start with digging the foundations Absolutely. and building the foundations. Simple as that. Yeah. And so, you know, um, and, and so that was one absolute prerequisite for me was making sure that the foundations are there because there have been ample evidential studies over the last 60 years, some of them longitudinal, unfortunately, most of them taking place in the US. Um, but the bottom line is, if you mediate quality, social and emotional learning, and quality is defined in many ways, obviously, it's got to be profound, it's got to be repetitive, that's mm -hmm. critical. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be comprehensive. You can't just do a, you know, a five-week meditation course or a... And it's got to be holistic. Yeah. Because what is more important, empathy or self-esteem? What is more important? They're all important. You can't leave out gender equality. You've got to teach it. Yeah. Because if you leave it to children to keep seeing the images they see around them or to keep seeing their father slap their mother or their mother slap their father, you know. The sure. bottom line is you need to build the brain neuropathways constructively and positively and help the children understand what loving is and mm. feels like, what being compassionate and empathetic and empathy is the glue that sticks everything else together. We teach 25 competencies and skills Great. Very directly, very seriously, and very repetitively, we scaffold. Leslie, take us into the model, like the how, because you are a doer as an activist. So yeah. take me through, how does it work? Like, what, what is it that you offer to countries, to school systems, to schools, to education environments, specifically around the Think Equal approach? So, so the first thing, just to cross be be between our last question and, and answer in this one, when I looked at the early childhood space, having understood that this has to happen in certain respects before six, yeah. emotion control, habitual ways of responding, game over by six, uh, in terms of foundations. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying no one can change after that. Obviously, I'm not saying that, right? But I am saying foundations that last your life, okay? Now, when I looked at the landscape of early years, the first thing that struck me was we have a problem, Houston, because <laughs> early years teachers have been and still are in many instances regarded as babysitters. They are there to make sure the children are taken care of and happy and play while the parents go out and pursue 
the main crux and business of life, which is pursuit of wealth, right? That's what we're taught. That's what life's about, is it? Well, to enable the parents to go off and do their job or jobs, the children are at that early years farmed out you know, to, to babysitters. And we very seldom respect or pay our early years teachers enough or train them fundamentally. So we have a largely untrained workforce around the world. How are we therefore going to train them for what? A year each? Three years each? Uh, how many decades or centuries will it take us to even-handedly train all of our early years teachers who hitherto very, very few have been trained? Well, you know, as for a person of action, I would at that point have just slipped my wrists and said, I can't do this and over and done with, right? So we had to find a different way, a different model. Now, before COVID-19, I always thought of Think Equal as a vaccination in the face of a pandemic. Mm. So the pandemic is discrimination and violence. In the face of any pandemic, we need a vaccination. It's the only way we're going to deal with this, which tackles it at the root and doesn't allow it to take hold. Now, we don't say to our doctors and nurses, go off, find a vaccination, against COVID-19, decide which ingredients you want to put in, a bit of disinfectant, a bit of this, a bit of whatever you will, right? Um, and you decide how many doses, how often to give the, the vaccination. No, no. It has to be specific ingredients. We say three doses of this vaccination a week. Mm. What I did was I gathered together the, the thought leaders or some of the thought leaders from around the world, many, many countries, and brought them all together. Vicky Colbert from Colombia. Colombia. Uh, She's wonderful. A yeah. genius uh, thinker, you know, who has democratized schools uh, across uh, rural Colombia. Um, Sir Ken Robinson. I mean, quite possibly the greatest educationalist we have. Dr. Mark Brackett, who, who I, I, I know podcast, you've chatted yeah. Of yeah. this podcast. Um, you know, th these are thought leaders. They are experts in their field. Um, D Mark and Dr. Robin Stern, both from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, um, etc. So we had a committee of 22 experts who have helped us create the toolbox because the toolbox is key. It's all very well to give teachers in, in early years or in any other years a curriculum a curriculum framework, if you haven't trained them thoroughly, they won't know how to curate the books or what books to curate. They won't know how to interpret critical thinking, nor how to teach it. Mm. You know, you can't leave it to chance. This yeah. is the very fundamental foundation for positive outcomes in life. You know, that is why these men I sat with grew up to rape because nobody gave them the foundation that taught them that a girl was entitled to go and see Life of Pi in a mall just as much as they were, mm. even if it came out at 20 to 9 at night and it was dark. <laughs> you know, I mean, to bring it down to its absolute exactly. granular. Yeah. So, so the bottom line really is that we had to be prescriptive. So the other analogy I use for Think Equal is it's the IKEA of education. Okay, sure, yeah. <laughs> Filled with metaphor, Leslie, always see these I'm conversations. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> in case it helps, you know. Yeah. The thing is, you don't have to be a carpenter who's gone to carpentry school for three years to learn how to put up an IKEA bookshelf. Sure. You go, you get your flat pack in your hand. In a moment, I'll tell you what our flat pack is, right? But you get your flat pack in your hand with the tools you need, that little special spanner that matches those particular screws, whatever. Um, and your instructions. Mm. And off you go, whether you are a carpenter or have ever put up a bookshelf in your life before or not, and you're able to give the children what their right is. They have to get this. Whether you are a teacher who is trained or talented or brilliant, or a teacher who's untrained and lazy or whatever, that's nothing to do with it. The children should get what the children need. It's their fundamental right to not grow up and rape, to not grow up and become depressed, to not grow up and bully or commit suicide. 
And Pinkiko deals with all of this, right? So we have created by now, and I happen to have on my desk just some examples of our books. We've created 70 narrative picture books, okay. which are the sign of the program. Uh, we always give our materials for free to teachers and schools. We will never allow a teacher or a school to pay for them. Of course, money has to be raised because the printing of books quite clearly in sure. physical form, you know, costs money, etc. cetera. Um, but what the teacher gets from us is a, a training, which can be even one day. We have a one-day training, we have a two-day training, either or, because the teacher trains on the job. In Think Equal, the teacher trains by following the instructions of the lesson plans. So I'll just start with the structure. Think Equal is in three levels. Mm -hmm. from the ages of three to six, each level age appropriate. So level one is for the three to four-year-olds, level two for the four to five, and level three, five to six-year-olds. It ranges over 30 weeks, which is essentially the terms times over an academic year. Mm -hmm. So we have 90 weeks worth of program. Every week has three lesson plans. So we have on the three levels, 270 lesson plans, that have been created by these amazing brains helping us, you know, right. and we take in best practice where we can. So, uh, you know, Yale has very generously allowed us to use their mood meter in our program. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Richard Davidson, neuroscientist, who's also on our committee, has allowed us to use his kindness curriculum. Where mm -hmm. there is best practice, why would we reinvent the wheel? We've exactly. brought in best practice. But the truth is there's very, very little that exists for the three to six year old age group. Interesting. Most people are focusing from six onwards or eight onwards. There's nothing for gender equality. So we've had to create a lot. So we've created 70 books and they are books like Marvelous Me, which teaches self-esteem. Note by the way, the difference in the illustrations here, Yoshi is different. Yoshi is a sensitive boy who, you know. Interesting very emotional and it's again you know from a different part of the world yes every book is illustrated by a different illustrator from around the world so that the children are also taught global citizenship the right. weather in is obviously about emotions coming and going and how and from the off children are seeing all manner of children fessel is not himself again a book that teaches our boys to express emotion that's why they grow up and commit suicide because we've put them into straight jackets and told them to man up, told them the whole world rests on their shoulders. They better be brave. They better be strong. They're not allowed to cry like a girl. They're Ahmed's journey. Mm. And look at the difference in the, in the artwork as well. So, you know, the whole aesthetic, I love my planet. We teach children oh, to recycle. We teach them to take care. You know, and again, the, the different styles, my special hair, you get the picture, right? Yeah, and we've got 70, 70 of these books that we've created with wonderful writers and artists from around the world. Mm. What comes with the books is a booklet for each level of 90 lesson plans, three a week for 30 weeks. And each week has one book that floats the theme or themes. Sure. Um, just grabbing the next book, a book like Amazing Daisy, it teaches self-confidence, teaches goal setting and resilience. So there are three of our 25 competencies and skills all dealt with in this one book. Yeah. And for three lessons over one week, we give the teacher the step-by-step -step instructions of how to teach and mediate those outcomes to our children. Mm. Um, and they're, so they are prescriptive. They have to be prescriptive so that the children get what they need, even handedly. But also, they're not putting information into children's heads. This isn't about that. This is about co-creating a learning. This is about the teacher floating questions and the children answering them and the children and the teachers just leading them. So yeah. we're instructing the teacher as to how to get there. And then we have a booklet of resources which the teacher uses together with 
the uh, books and the lesson plans. So it's a toolkit. It's, it's plug and play. It's replicable. It's scalable. It's how we were able to go in Sri Lanka, for example, from year one with 20 preschool classrooms now to 630 preschool classrooms within one year. Mm -hmm. And within another year, we're now rising to uh, 1,730 because we've just wow. been finalists to add another 1,100 classrooms. And we can go in like that in one go. Mm. So we can scale this fast and globally if we have the resources, the, the mm. money to do it. That's all that's missing. Tell me about, um, it's, it's the idea of a toolkit. I mean, there's so much to unpack in that. Um, Leslie, tell me a bit more about scale. What is success for Think Equal? And how does, and tie in, if you can, your answer into what's your view on the future of learning for schools, systems, universities, organizations? I mean, like, like many kind of prevention or interventions, um, this is like you've created this with the team to respond to a challenge. And of course, in the, in the utopian world, the challenge would be hardwired everywhere. So, you know, um, just take us through yeah. that. So kind of where is Think Equal right now? And what is, your, what is your hope or your insight that you'd offer around the future of learning for, for us globally in our schools, in our universities, and frankly, in our societies? Oh, that's a great and pivotal key question. So the first thing I want to say is that I'm not an expert in education. Uh, I'm an expert in the human heart, I'd say, because my whole life has sure. been focused on that. I started out as an actor. I then became a producer. I then became a director. That's been my, my, my currency is the human heart and human beings. And, um, uh, and I've chosen to focus on a global system change. So system change is key to, to my answer to that. We have to change the system to bring in what I perceive to be the key core purpose of education. Now, I will be respectful and say the core purpose of early years education because I'm not an expert sure. about the early years. Um, and also, you know, because my mission is global, it is to saturate the whole world. This has to be a system change. If it's not, we're going to still have pockets of those who are hating and those who, who, who want to destroy, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, it is key that we scale and scale fast. I, I think that, you know, in terms of the system change element of it, the key question that I ask when I sit with policymakers or education ministers or on occasion, you know, when I'm able to get to prime ministers mm. and I say, look, you know, you have, you would, of course, acknowledge a duty of care to your youngest citizens and your next generation. So please, can you explain to me, how can you deem it to be compulsory for your children to learn numeracy and literacy in a world in which we've got calculators and computers and spell checks, but it's optional for them to learn how to value another human being. It's optional for them to learn how to lead healthy relationships. This cannot be optional. This has to be mandated. It is the core purpose, at least of early years education. So think equals goal is to see this mandated within the system, a system change. And we have got our first country, Belize, uh, to agree to mandate this for every single three to six-year-old in the whole of the country. So we're wow. going to go in and train all the teachers of the early years, three to six. And that is the goal of Think Equal. And it's eminently achievable. We've, by the way, got that entire country funded. One extraordinary philanthropist um, a family, the Blue Chip Foundation, um, the Gross family have just been extraordinary in their support and they are funding the whole of Belize Fantastic. together. Now that's the way we'll achieve it, you know. Mm. Um, and if the top five billionaires in the world just put 0.5%, I believe it is, of their, of their wealth, of what they make from their billions, right, into the whole education uh, um, basket, 
we could solve not only the early years, but the rest of it and access to education and all the things that are missing. Um, Unfortunately, politicians only look three years ahead or four or five at most, you know, because Mm. they are so selfish and so kind of, you know, limited in their, in their vision that they are just looking at their re-election prospects. Um, and, and maybe that is in built in the system and therefore they're programmed to be. Yeah. So well, in that way. kind of to your point earlier around the, the program, what are the incentives and the misaligned incentives that we see, not just in our education systems, but in all systems globally, either economic or political or otherwise. Uh, there's so much to, Leslie, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I you I want yeah. to ask you two final questions. Yeah. Um, uh, the first is what is the what's the biggest thing that you're learning right now? Like, what's the unanswered question that you're you're still diving into through your work and life? And the last question will be what is your in a, a sentence long take home message that you've learned from your journey as as an activist now as an educationalist, but as a storyteller as well? Wow, challenging questions, Luca. Did you expect anything else? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so what's, what, you know, in, in all honesty, what is it right now that you're, you're kind of, you're still experimenting with, you're testing, you're trialing, you're tweaking? Um, and what's that, what's that kind of question? Because I think you've, you've, you've answered one of them. The big question is, how do we enable people to value each other as human beings? How do we create a kind society, not just a prosperous one? It's easy. We know how to do that. We've got the tools to do that. The question that I keep on struggling with has to be, and, you know, forgive me for crassly boiling it down to the nuts and bolts of it. It has to be, why are we struggling still four years in to an NGO that has that is just giving is a is a charity a total not for profit that has people working for it for nothing for five years not taking one penny of salary mm. right mm. how are we although we of course pay staff so we do have a staff that we pay but we also have a bunch of people who don't will not take money because sure. it's their life purpose right. Mm-hmm. How can we still, four years later, be scrabbling around, begging people to fund? I have got the South African Education Ministry wanting an MOA, a Memorandum of Agreements, passing between us. They want to give Think Equal to every single five-year-old child in the whole of South Africa. That's going to cost less than $2 million. It's going to revolutionize that. Yeah. A whole year... It has to be the age of five there because they don't start school earlier. So there's a bit of chaos in the early years there, but there's, you know, a free public education from the age of five. I, why can I not fund this? Why can't I find the just under $2 million that it's going to take? Mm. You know, I don't have any money left. I've put everything I have of my life savings and the, the money I made on films, etc., into this mission. Why am I having to persuade people that it's a good idea to teach our children to be decent human beings who are dignified and respect the dignity of others? When I have a program that is evidence-based, that has shown where I have teachers coming in with hundreds, thousands even, of you know stories about transformations of children from extremely violent to one teacher in Australia last week, I have to tell you this because sure, it's extraordinary. Yeah. One teacher in Australia, we're in 76 classrooms in Australia at the moment, um, and one teacher wrote to say, there is a child in my class who I have to tell you, uh, when she started a few months ago at the age of three, her mother told me she had an evil streak, and I thought, come on, no child has an evil streak, mm. but I came to think, well, maybe she does, because she would just go up to someone and just for the pleasure of hurting them would yank their ponytail or pinch them or bite them or something. She said, we're we're talking five months of this program, and I would now describe this child as the kindest child I have ever taught in 15 years. What's that about? It's about creating the brain architecture 
to be kind. It's about forming those neural pathways so that that becomes reflex and second nature. And it's so enjoyable that, of course, people are going to do that more than be unhappy and cause pain and then be in the doghouse, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. bottom line is, it's only, that's my question. Yeah. How that's and why question. is the world not running in? And this takes us straight back to the beginning yeah. of of our questions and answers here today because mm. globalization of indifference yeah. and that's our biggest challenge. Yeah. And so you know, that leads me to the last question. What do, what's my message? Mm. My message to anyone listening is, can you really face yourself in the mirror knowing that there is a very easy, simple solution to the intractable, brutal, horrific pandemic of violence and discrimination in our world and not step up and not stand up and do something, whether it is br trying to bring this and other programs. Look, you know, I can, obviously I only talk about Think Equal, but there are other yeah, programs. Of course, yeah. You know, just bring it in. Just, just get your politicians to commit to it, demand it. Yeah. Um, start a fundraiser. Put, give up one cup of coffee a week and say, you know what? It co actually costs $2 per child to teach right. Think Equal. Right. Oh, yeah. It's a coffee a week, isn't it? Sorry. It's, it, it, for a whole year, that's several children you can actually give it to. So it's about a commitment. Hmm. Do something. Join our movement. Volunteer. It, right. You can't sit there knowing there is a solution to this problem complain about the problem, be enlightened, know that we need to do something about it and actually shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, hopefully one day it'll be, it'll be solved because it's your children and your grandchildren who are at stake here and we owe this to the next generation. Uh, and, and I can simply do nothing other than die in the attempt of getting this to every child across the world. That's it. Well, I hope it doesn't come to that, Leslie because your passion and activism <laughs> and, and storytelling ability uh, is just a wonderful strength that you bring to the world. Thank you, it's, Luca. It's a pleasure to have had you on today. And again, we could have gone on for many more hours, I think, just exploring some of these ideas. But all the best with Think Equal and more to the point, the kind of the compelling call to action that you've left us all with. So thank you for the work you do. Luca, thank you. And thank you for everything you do. Really, I mean it. You, you're, you're extraordinary. Um, and, and I love talking to you too. Let's do another one soon. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.